0: God is very clear to communicate to his people that as we live life as humans in general and even particularly as we follow Jesus in a fallen world, we will experience, yes, many seasons of great joy and blessing as we follow Jesus and enjoy the community of God's people. But we will also experience deep seasons of trial, adversity, even even darkness. And as we noted last week, during such seasons, the evil one would use these experiences to seek to disrupt our faith in and fellowship with and faithfulness to Jesus. But as we also saw last week, the good news is that God deeply loves His people and is with us in those seasons working for His glory and our good. Using those very trials to accomplish the great redemptive purpose that he has for us to strengthen and ultimately authenticate the genuineness of our faith and in the process produce within us this gift of endurance through which God enables us to continue to follow him through life's journey until we arrive James 1 verse 12 at that day where we experience the the culmination of God's redemptive work that He's working out in us today and will be complete on that day when we are are conformed to the image of Jesus and we receive the promise that He has given us because of the work of Jesus, the promise of eternal life in God's presence with His people forever. Now, James 1.12 is kind of a climactic verse, It's a verse of celebration, of anticipation, of great hope for God's people, is it not? It reminds me of the the song that we used to sing, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. But James also realizes that we're not there yet. We have a ways to go. And so while that That day, verse 12, is intended to be a means of grace to motivate us to keep following Jesus because whatever happens here on earth, we don't want to miss that day. We're going to keep trusting and keep following. At the same time, James recognizes there's danger ahead. And so he very quickly shifts back in James chapter 1, which is our text again this morning, to deal with what is the most significant dangerous trial that we face as God's people on our journey here, the trial of temptation to sin. Now, in our culture in which sin is so prevalent, so accepted, and so really celebrated in every realm of our experience, it's very easy for us to kind of lose the the shock and horror of sin. Sin. It's very easy for us, even as God's people, to kind of become a little dismissive about the danger and the threat that sin remains to us. Well, it's not that bad. We get dulled in our senses, but to do so would be a grave mistake. Make no mistake, sin is not our friend. And as God's people who would be faithful to Him as we journey through this fallen world, it's vitally important that we think well about temptation so as to faithfully endure it for His glory and our good. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. And so last week the challenge was to faithfully endure trials, keeping the end in mind. This week the challenge is faithfully endure temptation... Keeping God's goodness and the gospel in mind. That's the main point of the text. Faithfully endure temptation, keeping God's goodness and the gospel in mind. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to James chapter 1. And the text breaks up into two sections, which will form the two main points of the sermon. And we'll begin in verse 13 through 16 with our first point. Number one. Understand and resist the deceptive process of temptation. Understand and resist the deceptive process of temptation. Notice chapter 1, verse 13. James begins, which we read earlier, James begins by starting with kind of clearing up a possible misconception someone might come to When they're going through trials, and in the midst of trials, it's very easy for us to fall into sin. There's many reasons why trials can produce in us opportunities to make choices that are sinful. Spiritual reasons, emotional reasons, relational reasons. And in the midst of that, you can understand how some might say, based on what James has already said, well, if God is allowing these into my life, maybe He's the reason why... I'm sinning. Maybe he's the source of my temptation. So James wants to settle that right off the bat as we seek to understand temptation so as to faithfully endure it. And so he begins with this statement, no one, let no one say who is being tempted, notice the all-inclusive nature of that statement, no one who's undergoing temptation should come to this conclusion, should say this, I am being tempted by God. God is the one tempting me. Now, that may seem kind of obvious to us, but before we too quickly move on, it's important to acknowledge that it is the human tendency to look to blame someone outside of ourselves for our, our sin. I mean, think back, well, as a parent, if you're a parent of children, especially if you have siblings, you experience this often. I can't tell you how often I have been issuing some kind of correction to one of my children, and the first words out of that child's mouth is, but he or but she did this. It's inherent within us as humans to want to shift blame for our actions onto someone else, and we see this dating all the way back to the the story of sin's entrance into the world, do we not? When God confronted Adam and Eve with their sin, their immediate, initial response was Adam said, well, the woman you gave me, she brought it to me, and you gave me her. And then Eve said, well, the serpent tempted and tricked me. Now, all that statement is true. God did give Eve to Adam as a mutual companion And she did give the fruit to him to eat it. The serpent did tempt Eve. And so those are true factors, but it was a wrong conclusion to turn the attention off of their own choice and volition in that moment and blame those factors. And yet that's how we tend to respond. Proverbs 19.3 says, Man's foolishness ruins his way and he rages against the Lord. So our, our, our sinful dispositions often make choices that lead to consequences, but then we want to blame God, and it's very easy to do this, even in the midst of trials. Lord, if you didn't allow this in my life, if that person wasn't so hard, if I hadn't have lost my job, if this didn't happen to me a long time ago, if you didn't make me this way, I mean, it's who I am. Very subtly, we can blame God for temptation. But what James does is relieve us of that tendency by saying this all-encompassing, conclusive statement, do not say when we face temptation that we're being tempted by God. And he gives two reasons. Number one, God is not tempted by evil. It's hard to fathom someone so good so righteous so pure so loving and holy that sin isn't even a temptation to that person it's hard it, it's so outside the realm of everything we know and experience it's hard to even fathom a being that good Course, as we'll see in a moment, the heart of temptation is deceptiveness. And God sees through all deceptiveness and knows full well the destructive nature of sin. And so sin, of course, is no temptation at all to God. He is blazing in his glory and holiness. And therefore, in light of that character of God, neither does he ever tempt anyone. Even in the midst of trials, God's use of trials, as we saw last week in our lives, is for our good not to entice us down a path of sin. God is not playing tricks with us. He doesn't have a hidden agenda. He's not secretly luring us to sin to see what we'll... God God is good and he desires good for his people and he is not seeking to tempt you into doing wrong or going down a path that will lead to your destruction. And so this is important for us for two reasons. One, so that we never succumb to that temptation in the midst of our trial where we begin to, even subtly in a nuanced way, blame God for our temptation. But number two, it's important on the flip side because it's really important for us to know that God is always good, is for us in Christ, and therefore we can always go to him fully trusting him never wondering or fearing whether he's, again, playing tricks or games with us, knowing that he's got our best in mind in all that he does for us. We can go to him fully, confidently, and safely, even in the midst of trial and temptation. And so God is not the source of temptation, so then where does temptation come from? I don't know about you, but in my own life, When I find that I have sinned, which happens plenty, or when I find that maybe I made a sinful response to someone, or maybe I've even started to drift down a sinful tendency or path in my life, oftentimes I I find myself saying, well, how did that even happen? Like, what, what happened in the moment that led me to act in that way or respond in that way or choose this path? Have you ever experienced that? Sometimes it happens so quickly we don't even know. It's kind of like watching an athletic event. Where you're watching the event, and and boy, those athletes are so fast and skilled, and things happen so quickly, it's sometimes hard to see what happened in a play, a close play, right? Like, wow, was he out of bounds or not? But then, of course, the television has the capacity to slow it down now, show it from every angle, and frame by frame show you, sometimes to an exhausting point, what happened in the play, so you see, oh, I see now what happened, it's pretty clear, that's what the Spirit is going to do in James 14, 1, 14, and 15. He's going to take the process of temptation and, in a way, slow it down frame by frame. So something that sometimes happens quickly and seems confusing to us, we can actually see, oh, I see what happens. Here's frame one, here's frame two, here's frame three. And he does this because he wants us as people to understand the process so that we can resist, and remain faithful. And so look at verse 14. Verse 13, don't say when you're tempted it's from God, but each person, notice again the all-inclusive statement. This is true of every person. Now there are a lot of precipitating factors. If we were doing a series or if this was a class, we would have time to explore the, the various things that impact us and can really make it hard in our lives, and we don't want to minimize those things. But In some way, in the midst of all the different factors that affect our lives, this process is happening in the midst of temptation. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. So the first frame in the the, the process is we see, okay, what's happening when we're tempted is within us. The enemy is within we all have evil desires remaining or abiding within. Now, this points us to the nature of man as being born in a sinful condition. It points us to the doctrine of total depravity. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not someone who identifies as a Christian, first of all, we're so thankful you're here, and I don't know if that's true for anyone or not. But if you're, that's true for you, Great that you're here, and this is a great place to be, to, to see what it looks like to, to be part of a Christian community and to hear the word taught week after week. So keep coming. But when you hear us start talking about the sinfulness of man, you might think, well, that's one of the reasons why Christianity bugs me. Such a negative view of humanity. You have to be so pessimistic about humans. And a couple things I want to say about that. Number one, Scripture actually has an incredibly nuanced view of the human condition on the one hand scripture is very clear that as human beings it is a privilege to be part of this this race of people as you look at the creation story and then what god says even after it human beings are clearly and uniquely created in the image of god unlike any other part of his creation we alone were created to be the climactic Uh, point of his creation here on earth uniquely created to reflect something of who God is particularly with the capacity to love and be loved to know and be known like God is and to reflect that in the world. And so it is a privilege to be created sons and daughters of God with that unique calling, and when sin entered the world, the image of God was marred in humanity, but it wasn't erased. We still bear the image of God stamped on us, and that's true for every human being. And that's why we affirm the dignity and value and worth of any human being, and we're able to care and love them because they are image bearers of God. And it also helps to make Sense of what we experience in this world. Because we think about the human race, we do acknowledge, wow, human beings have this incredible capacity to, for, for intelligence and creativity and production and artistic expression and acts of compassion, right? We see that around us, even in people who aren't followers of Jesus. And that's because the image of God is within us. And those are... A shadows of who God created us to be. But at the same time, as we look at the world at large, as we look at people in our lives, and as we look at our own hearts, we recognize something is wrong. Something is deeply wrong with us as a race. The sin and the conflict and the hatred and and the way in which we engage one another. And Scripture makes sense of that for us. We were created in God's image and yet that image is deeply marred. We're born now inheriting a sinful disposition from our parents and their parents and so forth. And that's why the world is in the mess that it's in. Because there's something wrong with us. We're we're turned inward as humans. In fact, over in James chapter 4, verse 1, James kind of speaks to the heart of what he's talking about. We looked at this last week for a different reason. But he talks about the kinds of desires and passions that he's referring to here. And when you think about desires, there's all kinds of specific desires you may think of, but the heart of the sinful desires we have really are the the curve inward towards self-love and selfishness and pride that dominates our hearts. What is the source, verse 1 of chapter 4, of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions, that wage war within you? You desire and don't have you murder, covet, cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you don't ask. You ask and don't receive because you're asking with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. So these are desires that do not have love for God and love for others behind them, but they're desires that are turned inward and that live within each one of us. And notice it says back in James 1.14, every man is drawn away of his own desires. Interesting word, the word own there, it's the word we get our word idiosyncrasy from. It refers to a unique blend that's unique to us. Now, we all share a common disposition towards selfishness and pride. But based on so many different factors, that kind of turns into a unique experience for each one of us, a unique blend of temptations and, and struggles in our own lives that we carry around with us as part of who we are in our humanity. That's the starting point of temptation. The evil one has a base of operation within the human heart. It starts there. We, As we live our lives, within us are these, for the Christian perspective, yet-to-be-sanctified desires. All right, so that's frame one. Well, then what, ha- what happens next? Back in verse 14, each person is tempted when... He is drawn away and enticed by his own desires. So that, those phrase, that phrase, drawn away and enticed, James borrows from the fishing and hunting world. The second frame is our desires are enticed or lured away. We are enticed or lured to act on these desires. When we move to our new house, oh, it's not new anymore, I guess, but a few years back, uh, we moved in, we kind of closed over the summer, and then we moved in September, and we had a nice fall there. And then the next season, uh, summer, I'm not exaggerating, it was all of a sudden like rat apocalypse in our neighborhood. <laughs> I mean, it was crazy. And we were like, these weren't here when we were looking at the house for last fall. What is going on? Is this, I mean, it was crazy. Rats like everywhere, not just occasional rats. It was so we were calling the city and trying to figure out what's going on. And so finally, we get a hold of someone and they're like, oh, you live there. Aren't they redoing the streets and digging down into the sewers and doing a lot of work and that whole stretch? Yeah. OK, that's what's happening. They're going so deep that they're kind of disrupting them. And they're gri- They don't want to be up any more than you want to. They're coming to the top because their life is being disrupted. Once that stops, they'll go back down. Well, that is what happened, thankfully. Um, it's over, rat apocalypse. <laughs> They're down doing their thing. But one way to get, deal with a rat problem is through rat poison. And what's interesting about rat poison, and apologies for you animal lovers, but rat poison is 99% legitimate rat food and 1% poison. And so they eat the poison and it happens slowly over the period of a few days where it thins their blood and the hemorrhage and and then they'll die and they don't associate with the poison. But because it's 99% food, it's attractive to them. It's a bait that lures them. It taps into their innate desire to eat and it lures them to take advantage of satisfying that desire. Ooh, here's some food. Here's an opportunity to satisfy my need for hunger. That's the idea of animal baiting or luring. Think of a fisherman who is fishing for a particular type of fish. And depending on the type of fish, he's going to use a different lure based on what what will attract that fish. And so they put the lure. But what's key when you're fishing is what do you have to hide? You have to hide the hook. And so you're basically tricking that fish, tapping into a desire. You know that fish has for a certain type of satisfaction of his desire to eat. I mean, if you put a carrot stick down, it wouldn't attract many fish, but if you put a certain type of lure, a certain type of bait, or, or a little fish, or whatever, it's gonna, a fish is going to see that and think, oh, no, fish aren't thinking this, but, oh, <laughs> I'm hungry, that looks like food that will satisfy my desire for food. That's, that's the language here, and so temptation is playing off the desires that exist in our heart, presenting an opportunity for us to satisfy that desire for something in a way that is selfish or proud in many, many different areas of our lives. It's luring that desire. That's always happening. Now, at this point, it, we, we haven't necessarily sinned. We're still sinful by nature, but we haven't necessarily sinned. But whether it happens very quickly because someone speaks a word to us that stokes our pride and very quickly it's an opportunity to act and be triggered into demonstrating we're not going to be treated that way and we respond back. Or whether it's something that happens more slowly over a period of time where we begin to mull over an opportunity to sin. This is the process. We have sinful desires that are being lured away. But the trick is to realize that at the heart of the luring is deception. The hook is being hidden. The fish may satisfy his desire, but in so doing, he also finds his life has ended, unless it's a nice fisherman who throws him back. So what is frame three? Everyone is tempted when he's drawn away of his own desires and enticed. Then, when lust or our desires conceive, there's the third frame. Our desires, frame two, they get lured away in some way. Frame three, conception happens. Conception, when two things join together to create a new life. So what is conception? Well, most interpreters believe it's when our will says yes to the desire. So the desire here, it's being lured away. What do we do in that moment of temptation? Do we resist, do we run, do we pray, do we see what, or do we say yes? And sometimes it happens so fast, we don't even realize that's what's happening, but that's exactly what's happening. We're saying yes to the opportunity, and as soon as our heart yields, it cons- the lust conceives and it produces sin. And he's changing now to the language of birth, obviously, conception and birth. And so again, think of that fish, when that fish is swimming around, and I know we're being a little anthropomorphic with the fish here, but as the fish is swimming around and sees that bait, and maybe it's a wily fish that's been around for a while, and he's swimming and thinking, and saying, huh, that, that looks good, but oh, is, it, or is it right? So he hasn't yet taken the bait, but then finally his desire takes the best of him, and, he, and that's when he, he does it. That's when it conceives, when he decides, I'm going for it, and the fisherman feels it and says, ha, I got a bite. That's what happens with lust and sin. When we say yes to that sin, our desire conceives and sin is produced. We've chosen a path that is not to God's glory. It's not acting in love for God or love for others. It's curved inward to to satisfy our own pride or selfishness. And then notice frame four. And sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. Gives birth to death. The course of sin ultimately ends in death. Now, for the animal, it happens quickly. For humans, we're living in a condition of separation from God, but the ultimate experience of that might take time to develop. But what God is saying to us is the end course, the end result of sin, don't be fooled, is just like that hook that's intended to destroy the fish, but you don't see it, and the fish thinks it's safe, but then it's cannibalistic. It ends up turning in and killing him. Sin is like that. It promises us an opportunity to satisfy our yearning for some desire to be fulfilled. It promises good for us, but in the end, though we may experience some measure of pleasure in the moment, in the end, the hook is hidden from us, and it, it, the course of it is death. Sin is not our friend. That's why Peter says, to abstain from fleshly desires that are actually warring and fighting against your soul. It is a holy war. Now, as you break down the process of sin, the most important point James really is getting at is the loci of temptation, where that temptation comes from and that that enemy is within, and that it's deceptive, that it won't deliver what it promises. Now, there's much to say about this, if we we're Again, if we were doing a longer study and we look to so many other passages that talk about how do we think about dealing with sin and temptation, and the process of sin gives us a lot of insight as to how to think about it. For example, clearly, part of the, part of the goal would be what Paul says elsewhere is to put to death our fleshly desires, increasingly drain the life out of them by God's grace. Or, in the moment of temptation where that desire is being lured, that's where a battle needs to be fought. Or through confession of our sin that we're struggling with, bringing it into the light. So there's many things that other scriptures speak into this, but what does James say in this context? Well, notice verse 16. The first thing he says is, and notice the tender words in verse 16. He calls them, my dear brothers and sisters, my beloved brethren. He loves these people dearly. And he says, Don't be deceived. Literally, stop being led astray by sin. The idea is of someone who's on a path who gets led astray off the path and therefore doesn't ever make the destination of that path. He's led astray from it. Don't let that happen to you with regard to temptation. Over and over again, God warns us with love. Not to be fooled by the lie of sin. And some of us might say, well, yeah, that's not that big a deal, really. Could it be that you're deceived? I mean, that's what it means to be deceived. You don't realize it. You don't know. That's what a blind spot is, right? Oh, that's not true of me. Well, that's why we call it a blind spot. You're not seeing it. Sin is deceptive, and and listen to God's loving plea to you. Don't be led astray. The thief, Jesus said, comes to steal and kill and destroy. Don't be deceived by the false allure and the shine and the glamour of sin and immediate satisfaction of those inner desires. The course is death. That's the process of temptation. Starts within with desires that we have that are sinful. Those desires get lured away and look shiny and present to us an opportunity to satisfy those desires. When our will says yes to that opportunity, it produces sin. And if that continues, the ultimate end is death and separation. That's heavy. Not fun to think about. So what's the answer? How do we respond as dearly beloved brothers and sisters here to James? What does he say? Well, that brings us to the second point of our sermon, verse 17 and 18. Seek deliverance in God's goodness and the gospel. Seek deliverance in God's goodness and the gospel. Don't be deceived, verse 16, my brothers and sisters. It's kind of a hinge verse connecting the beginning of what we just saw in verses 13 through 15 about the deceptiveness of sin and temptation with verse 17 and 18, which is something else we should not be deceived about. Notice what he says in verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. What he's saying is one of the ways we deal with sin is by recognizing that God is the source of everything that is truly good in our lives and for us. He is a good God and what he gives is always good. Even in the midst of the brokenness of the the human condition and all the hard things he faces. He says every good gift and every perfect gift. So at a basic level in the common grace of God, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, whether you're an atheist, whether you're practicing another faith that denies Jesus as Lord, wherever you are, we receive so many good things from the hand of God. Life and breath and relationship and joys and and provision and opportunity and gifts and skills, and intelligence, etc. And these are all gifts of God. They're 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 uh, shadows pointing us to the the sun, the greater gift, which is God Himself. And so, one of the things that's happening here is that James is kind of saying, "There's a man named Thomas Chalmers you may have heard of, and he wrote a sermon or a booklet called that the theme of which is the." The the power, the expulsive power of a greater affection. And what the idea is, we could look at sin and temptation and try desperately to say no in our own strength, even though that's really what we want. And there's a point where we have to do that at times. Deny ourselves and say no to a desire in the moment. But the greater power is to recognize that in God, there's a greater good that far surpasses the false allure that temptation is offering me in the moment. Temptation says, satisfy this desire right now. God says, no. No, seek me. Enjoy me. I am the source of what is truly good. Temptation is promising you good, but there's a hook in it. God is saying, I'm promising you good, and... It's it's me. It's me. And so desiring God, longing for God, seeking God is the greater affection that causes us to say, I want him. I'm trusting that he is the greater good that I need and want and long for, not this temptation. You see? see the contrast there? So that's part of what's happening here. And we can be confident because the text says that he's the Father of Lights, which there's lots of ideas about what that means, but it certainly means he's sovereign over um, his creation. And lights, in a sense, for them was the most stable thing. And notice what he says at the end of verse 17: this beautiful passage that we get the great hymn "Great is Your Faithfulness" from. Uh, that God is the Father of Lights, with whom is no uh, does not cha- who does not change like shifting shadows. So there's, there's complete dependability that God is good and he is always good and he's not going to change while sin is deceptive. And when we succumb to it, suddenly we find, oh no, this isn't what I thought it would be. This is leaving me empty. This is creating consequences in my life. This is separating me from people and friends and myself and my own values. This is separating me from God. Sin does not deliver, but God is always good. He doesn't change. We can always count on when we say no to sin and when we seek joy in God that he, he always delivers because he is good and he's always good, unchangingly good. And so, seek deliverance in God's goodness and the gospel. Now, verse 18 is this, another climactic point in the text. I believe it's kind of the the key verse of the whole book. In verse 18, there's a couple things happening. Number one, James is saying, okay, God is the giver of good gifts. And here is the ultimate example of God being a giver of good. It's what the scripture often does, arguing from the greater to the lesser. I'm telling you that every good gift and every perfect gift comes from God in to prove it, let me just celebrate the greatest gift that God has given. And he says in verse 18, By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Here he's talking about God's gift of new life through the gospel. By His own choice, we who by nature are sinful and bent away from God, though we did not bring anything to God to earn His grace or to deserve it, God of His own choice, through the person of Jesus, entered into our brokenness at great cost, lived the life that we should have but Failed to live. And though he had no sin of his own, for which deserved God's judgment, willingly offered his life up on the cross as a substitute for us. Though sin leads to death, Jesus took that death for us, in our place, rose again the third day, and now, through the preaching of the gospel, God graciously gives us new life, new birth through the word of truth. What a gift. Now, if this is I referenced this verse last week, Romans 8:32. If God delivered his own son on our behalf, if he gave this ultimate gift to us then can't we trust any lesser gift will be given to us that is good, that we need? You can trust that God, the good giver of gifts, will give you everything that you need in this life to faithfully follow Him for your good and your joy and His glory, and that will culminate in an eternity of good gifts to His eternal praise and glory that we sang about earlier. Notice the contrast of character between us, evil desire, God, who is good, who cannot be tempted with evil. And notice the contrast between sin, which at its core is deceptive, and God who gives us new life through the word which is truth. Truth? Truth? Or deception. God's word and the gospel and God Himself can be trusted. He is true. And He is a giver of good. And so resist temptation by seeking deliverance in the goodness of God and His gospel. Fight sin by fighting for joy in God and His goodness. And then the greater thing. It's kind of like if it's a special day, maybe my birthday, and I know my wife is planning a spectacular meal, my favorite. I've had lasagna for my birthday meal since I was five, so there you go. Great lasagna meal, we'll say. Great dessert. And I know it's coming, and I'm like, oh, I can't wait for tonight. But then, So I, I have a light breakfast, and I skip lunch because I want to be geared up to enjoy as much as I can. But then mid-afternoon, I'm starting to get hungry, and feeling some pains, and Starting to feel tired and think, man, you know, I'm going by, you know, my favorite restaurant. My son works at Chick-fil-A, so I'll say Chick-fil-A, and like, man, I should stop and grab a quick sandwich or something. But but that day, what do I probably do? I say, wait a second, Chick-fil-A's okay, but it's not my wife's lasagna. I, I think I'll say no to the lesser good and yes to the greater good. Because I really want him. Now, that's not a great illustration because Chick-fil-A is pretty good. It's not sin, right? That's what God is saying here. But there's something else happening that I think is even more beautiful. He's giving us hope in verse 18. Because when we we consider verses 14 and 15 and recognize the evil that's within, the, the, the tragic reality is what can we do? How can I overcome the evil within? How can I say no to these desires? And what God is also saying in verse 18 is He has provided the means by which we can say no. And that is new life within. He describes these believers as a kind of first fruits of His creatures. And there's a couple things happening there, but part of what's happening is, remember, these, this is really early in Re- New Covenant redemptive history. M- many of these Believers, how did they come believers, Jewish believers living outside of Palestine by the early 40s? Well, these many of these believers had come to Jerusalem for the feast of Passover and were there in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost and were undoubtedly among the many who received that initial outpouring of the Spirit as the, 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 the outflow of Christ's work and the Fulfillment of the promise of the new covenant. And what was that promise? The promise was that God would do something within. The law is good, but it doesn't give us the power to obey it. It actually condemns us by showing us, boy, I see what I'm supposed to do, but I can't do it. But the new covenant, the new promise, is that God is going to change our hearts. He's going to give us, write the law inside of us and give us His Spirit to enable us to follow Him. And so these believers who either came to Jerusalem or some of them lived in Jerusalem and then were spread out because of the persecution were among the very first fruit recipients of the new covenant blessing of having the law written on their hearts and being recipients of the regenerating work of the Spirit who makes our dead heart alive on the inside. And they are a first fruits of all who would experience the regenerating power of the Spirit that happens through the ministry of the Word. And so God gives to us what He demands of us. He warns us of the power of sin and of the sinful desires that yet remain in us, but then He says, but I'm a giver of good gifts and I'm giving you by My grace through the Gospel what you need. What you didn't have before the gospel, you now have because I have graciously given it to you through the preaching of the gospel and the work of the Spirit based on what Jesus did. God has given you what you need to follow Him and to understand and resist sin. Not because of your strength, but because of the regenerating work He's done in your, your life. And so as we think about, as we wind down and as we think about this good news, remember, apart from God's grace, we will continue to thirst for the poison of sin. But God has redeemed us from our insatiable thirst and hunger for what leads to our own demise. We're still tempted, but through Christ, sin is losing its luster And we can flee and run from the lure of sin and celebrate what we have in Jesus. How do we do that? Well, much we could say, but verse 18 highlights the power of the word of truth. And so if it's through the word of truth that the Spirit creates our new life in our heart, then certainly it's going to be through the word of truth that He continues to sustain that new life. And so one of the ways in which we continue to be fueled and sustained for the ability to say no to the deceptive power of sin is through a word-centered, gospel-centered life. That's why it's so important that you're here and you're part of a community that faithfully preaches the word week after week. We need it for our spiritual good. We need to be bathed weekly with the word of truth by which the Spirit will sustain the life He has begun in us. That's why you need Word-centered community. Gathering together is vitally important, and our need for the Word is no less than that, but we need even more than that. We need Gospel-centered relationships and friendships that will minister the Word of truth to us and encourage one another and speak to one another the Gospel In an ongoing way, and it's of course why we need the word of truth in our personal lives, to be developing the discipline of being in the word and allowing that word to bathe us daily and renew our minds. How will a man purify his way by taking heed to your word? Scripture says. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, any of you read that or seen the movie? All right. it introduces us to a lovable character named Eustace. I'm kidding if you've read the book. Eustace is one of those characters that just grates against you because he is so he's just self-centered and know it all and and just rubs against you. But really he's kind of an extreme version, a projection of what we all are inside of us, prone to selfishness and pride. And so a lot of the book is introducing us to this character and building our, our sense of disgust at him. And for time's sake, I won't tell the whole story, but at one point in the story, he slips away from the Narnian crew and he comes across a dragon's cave. And he's watching the cave and he notices the dragon actually is dying and then dies. And so he sees, he goes into the cave and sees this massive treasure trove beyond your imagination of gold and all kinds of gold trinkets and everything. And of course, instantly his heart is thinking, yes, mine. Thinking about all the ways he can use this and being lured to satisfy his inner desire for self and he falls asleep on a pile of gold as he thinks about this. Well, quoting from the book, when he awakes, Eustace discovers that he is now no longer a boy, but he's fallen under the curse of this gold and this this temptation. He is now a dragon. The outward manifestation of the inner greed and selfishness in his heart. Well, the story goes on, and it's interesting to hear how it develops. And he's obviously devastated and starts crying, and he's he's. Uh, ultimately trying to figure out how to overcome this himself and how to turn back the curse and rid himself of the, the, being a dragon. And nothing he does can, do, can, can work. Well, finally, after some time, the solution arrives. The solution is Aslan, who's the Christ figure of the series. He leads Eustace to a garden on top of a mountain where a well stands in the very center Eustace wants to enter the water so the pain in his leg can be soothed because of uh, 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 he was chained up, but Aslan says he has to undress first, and Eustace realizes that he needs to he needs to shed his skin like a snake, and he sees how dirty and scaly he looks, and he tries to to peel off a layer, only discover another layer, and then another layer, and after three layers he realizes it's vain. He's not going to make himself clean. He's not going to get rid of the scaly skin of the dragon. So Aslan says to him, Eustace, you must let me undress you. Now Eustace is nervous because the lion's great claws come out and begin to tear at his skin, but he's so desperate to be rid of this condition that he relents. He lies down on the ground. He's flat on his back, and I'm going to quote from the book, The very first tear that Aslan made was so deep, this is Eustace speaking, that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was lying on the grass." only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me, I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I would no skin on, and threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why I would turned into a boy again. After a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me in new clothes. This is the work that God is doing. He's recreating us after the image of his son. He's doing the work, and because he's doing the work, because he's made us new and is making us new, we can and we must faithfully endure temptation by keeping God's goodness and the gospel in mind. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the hope we have in Christ. We, we have to acknowledge our own weakness, our own sinfulness, and our own desperate need for deliverance. We thank you that despite our own propensity to sin, that you're a good God who loves us, who has provided everything we need for deliverance. And for those of us who have experienced your grace and are trusting in Jesus, you are making us new. You are good. Father, deliver us from being deceived in any particular area of our life. Give us grace to see and to turn from that and to realize that whatever it is that we're holding on to, the joy found in you is infinitely and measurably greater and that you have given us through your spirit and the gospel what we need to faithfully endure. May you do this in our lives for your glory and for our good, both here and eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.